back to 1 Thessalonians, the letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, which was in an area of Greece and um, modern-day Greece. And this was the first um, extending of the gospel into Europe, this Thessalonian church. These were the first Europeans to hear the gospel. And Paul had gone there. This was a new church. They were new believers. And Paul writes this simple letter. It's not really deep and weighty like, say, Romans or Hebrews, something like that. This is a pretty simple letter spoken to people who are in the early stages of their walk with God and they need, as Paul says in other places, they, they need milk. They're like babies, and he's feeding them something basic. Uh, he doesn't need to reach some of the lofty peaks he does in Romans. But the first church in Europe, this church, gets this simple letter, this simple encouraging letter from not just Paul, it says Silvanus and Timothy at the beginning, from the men who risked their lives to announce to them the saving love of God in Christ. So they get this letter. You know they would value this. They'd be reading it with um, great relish, knowing this, this matters. This is from those people that risked their lives to tell us about the love of God. And this announcement, Paul says at the beginning, landed on them. They received it uh, with power and with Holy Spirit conviction. It wasn't just, oh, some nice little philosophy. It landed on them with power and Holy Spirit conviction. They responded because they were compelled to. There was conviction in it, and it resulted in their lives being transformed. I'm just summarizing the first chapter. Their lives were transformed. Then they, in turn, the Thessalonians, went out to other areas in modern-day Greece and what is now Turkey, and they shared the gospel, and those people, in turn, responded to the gospel the same way these people had. And that's how it works. That's how it has happened for 2,000 years. How many remember, I'm going to date myself here, but there was a commercial on television probably in the 70s, maybe the 80s. I think it was for shampoo. I don't watch those anymore because it's too painful. But I, this uh, shampoo commercial, a, a girl's face, a girl would come on and she said, I tried new whatever, L'Oreal or something. And, you know, and what was it? Yeah, I told two friends. And then they told two friends. And within, a, you know, whatever, 20 seconds, the screen is multiplying with all these pictures and they told two friends and you can hear the chorus of them and they told two friends and it it multiplies. That's the gospel. That's how it works. It would be one thing if I led Kim to the Lord and that was great. And then I led Cherise to the Lord and that's great. And then I led Risha. Then I led Risha to the Lord. Three people. That's wonderful. I'm happy. I want to do that. But what about... I lead Kim to the Lord, and then she leads Claudia to the Lord. And then while I'm leading her to the Lord, you're, Claudia's reaching one, and 
two friends and two friends and two friends. and the, every, the, It's this multiplication. That's what happened. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy come to the Thessalonians. They share the gospel. Then these guys go out. He mentions two other provinces that they went and shared the gospel. So now two other provinces have got the gospel spreading in them. It isn't just, hey, you guys need to wait for Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to come because, boy, they're going to give you the, the message of life. No, they were so turned on by it, they went and gave it. So that by the time you get to the end of chapter 1, Paul says, we've heard from the people you, your converts, have told us now about you. They're all, like the word's coming around. They're spreading the gospel. That's how it's supposed to work. We tell two friends, they tell two friends. Those two friends multiply, multiply, and exponentially it goes. I pray this night even that God would trigger a revival, an hour of revival like that in Canada. In, In Richmond, in Vancouver, in the Lower Mainland, in BC, we need it. In Canada, God knows we need it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray for it. Let's ask for it. God, keep bringing it. Okay. I want to reinforce a vital emphasis that Paul makes at the end of chapter 1. And we're not going to stay there. I know I spent three weeks on it. I'm just going to do this, and then we're going to jump on and go through uh, most of chapter 2. This emphasis that Paul makes that I think our generation sort of neglects or undervalues anyway. Verses 9 and 10, Paul writes this. They themselves report about us what kind of a reception or what kind of welcome we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul says this. You turned from God, sorry, you turned from idols to serve God, a living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven. That is part of the gospel. We focus on the birth of Christ, the sufferings and the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and even the ascension of Christ to the throne of God. But this, this fifth thing, if this doesn't happen, what are we waiting for? What are we believing for? Just life forever here? No way. He's coming back. This is part of the gospel and an important part, not a side issue. Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom. He's coming back to receive to himself, to gather to himself, the redeemed people that he gave his life for. The people that he died to redeem. He's coming back for us. He said, if it wasn't so, I would have told you. We know he tells the truth always. And I feel that the Thessalonians were holding this dear. So that Paul even mentions it. He says, you guys are waiting for this. They're holding this reality dear to their hearts. They lived in anticipation of Jesus' return. Do you know that the the return of Jesus, the second coming of Christ, is mentioned or referred to 300 times in the Bible? Paul himself mentions the, the second coming of Christ or refers to it 50 times. 
In all the writings of Paul, he refers to baptism 13 times. Wow. And we think baptism is important, and of course it is. But Paul referred to it 13 times, but he refers to the second coming of Christ 50 times. That's incredible. That's like a nearly 400% um, 400% more. It's, it's in, an incredible thing. 50 times he does this. I think we concentrate our expectations too much on this world. Oh, we receive Christ to live abundant life here and God meets our needs and God helps us and God breaks through in our lives and he does all the wonderful things he does in this life and he blesses us in so many ways and he does, but almost to the exclusion of the, the, the coming world. We're living just in this one, just viewing this one, which is ironic because we are most likely the generation that's going to get to see the return of Christ. So it's ironic that we would be thinking only of this life and not that, hey, we're going to see him come. I think we need to renew our minds in that direction. What do you think? Amen? To know that he's coming back. He said he'd come back. That's the capstone, the crown on the gospel. He came, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, suffered, died in our place on the cross, was buried, rose from the dead, defeating death forever to give us eternal life. He ascended to the Father and said, I'll come again in like manner. The angel said, the way you've seen him go is how he's going to come. That means for real, not just, oh, spiritually, I feel like he's come back. No, he's actually coming back. Okay, Pastor Kevin showed us in chapter 2 that making God's gospel of salvation known was Paul's mission at all cost. Even it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, they were mistreated. Okay, and we'll read that in just a second. That was Paul's mission. And actually, it's every Christian's mission. You tell two friends, I tell two friends, and they tell two friends, and on and on and on it goes. It's every Christian's mission. Pastor Kevin asked this urgent question of us. If we don't do it, who will? And if not now, when? I think that's a good question. If we don't share the kingdom of God, if we don't share the news of salvation in Christ with the world, who will? The government? Definitely not. Um, other religions? Definitely not. The education system? Definitely not. If we don't do it, who will? If not now, when? Paul reminds the church that he writes to here, the Thessalonians, he reminds them that he and his team were bitterly opposed. They were mistreated. They suffered for making Christ known. But they came and did it boldly anyway. They kept doing it. They, they wouldn't stop. Why? Because doing so is absolutely the most important thing on the planet. What else could matter? 
that people hear what God did to save them from sin and death and give them eternal life in relationship with himself. That's the most important thing on the planet. If not us, who will? When I was um, only saved a few years, I don't know, maybe three or four, five, um, my grandmother was dying, and she lived in Penticton. I still lived in Edmonton, and they called. They said she's not going to make it. Uh, she's, you know, going to go soon, and she was... I think 76 or something like this. And so I got on a plane. I thought, okay, I'm going to fly there. I've got to see my grandmother. I, this was my mom's mom. I loved her. She was just a wonderful lady. And um, I got there, and I had only been a believer a little while. And I admit, I didn't always use wisdom with who I told the gospel to and how I did it. Um, this will be hard for you to imagine, but in those days, I was a bit of a bull in a china shop with that. Um, but the, I, I got to the hospital in Penticton, and I guess my mom, thinking that I was coming, and she was already there uh, seeing her mom, she knew that I might try to do something like... Um, and she was not saved yet. My mom was not saved yet at that time. She got saved later. But I arrived at the hospital. I got in the elevator. It went up two or three floors. And <laughs> the door opened, and my mom was standing like this at the door. <laughs> my greeting was not, hey, John, I'm so glad you've come to see Grandma. The door opened, and she said, don't go in there and talk about Jesus to your to, to grandma and, and freak out grandpa. Like, that was the thing. Don't, like, you know, mom. Like, and and I, it, I mean, it was a downer, uh, to say the least. And uh, although my mom had me pegged, I was, I was, you know, hey, she was on the threshold. She's about to cross over, man. And I don't want her to spend eternity separated from Jesus. So absolutely, I was going there to share the gospel, but that was the greeting. And I was like, you know, I was a pretty new believer. It's like, God, how do I honor my mom and my granddad? And no, I don't want to freak him out. And I, but my grandma's, I don't know, she might have minutes. And I, so I went in, and they, they wouldn't leave me alone in the hospital room with her. But at one point, uh, somebody else was in there, and I was just praying um, and saying silently, carrying on a conversation with God, just saying, God, nothing else matters like this. They don't get it. What's at stake here? If she doesn't respond to the, to the truth in Christ at this point, she's stepping over the threshold of eternity lost. And God, I, I cannot let that happen. Please, you cannot. So my prayer was, God, please, 
reveal yourself to her, even in her semi-conscious state. She's kind of in and out. Would you please reveal yourself to her so she has a chance to respond? Because people are in this room and they, you know, don't want me to do it. And I wish I had been bold enough to just say to my mom at the time, Mom, I love you, but please clear people out of that room for a moment. You don't understand what's at stake here. I wish I would have done that, but I, you know, I just didn't know how to do it at the time. I felt afterward, and she, uh, she, I left the next day, and she was still there. I think she died within a day or two. But I felt like God said, I did what you asked. I answered your prayer. I won't know for certain until I am in heaven, and I hopefully see her face. But the thought is this, nothing else is as important. Like when it comes to, okay, here it is, here it is. It's, it's now like eternity. Are you going here to be united to Christ forever? The source of all life? Or are you saying, no, I'm still going to be independent of you? Because he'll let us have that. Independence from him. Eternal death. Eternal life. Eternal death. What could possibly be more important? So I appreciate that Pastor Kevin would say, I dare you. Be bold to go bring the gospel. Start conversations. Like, do it. And be sensitive like he was. He said the one lady on the phone he prayed with, you know, that week. The, another person he said he knew, mm, it's not quite there yet. And, you know, let's um, think uh, a little more long term. Let's develop this so that I have a chance. But all of this to say, etern- God sent his son to save us from sin and death and to have eternal life. Nothing else is nearly as important. Okay, that is my intro. All right, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 to 16. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we have the boldness in our, in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. (coughs) But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brothers and sisters, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. 
Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own glory and kingdom. Sorry, his own kingdom and glory. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you, are, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Okay, over and over, the apostle points out how their character and their conduct substantiated the gospel claims that they made. Their, the way they behaved substantiated the news that they brought. They, it, it lined up. Okay, This is the natural expression of being gospel people. People of the saving message would be to live in a way that uh, points to the reality of being saved. Okay? It, it's a natural expression of being gospel people or God's people. Our conduct and character reflect God's character, reflect God's message. That's, that's just natural, right? It just has to be. All through the Bible, that's there. It's always been that way. God is never telling us things in the Bible so that we're just full of knowledge about God things. No, it always is supposed to impact our lifestyle, our character, our, the way we live. It always is that way. Not just filling our heads with knowledge, but always living in a way that's congruent. Jesus was not against the Pharisees because they were just knowledgeable about the Bible. He spoke against many of them because he even said at one point, do what they say, just don't live the way they live. That's a terrible state. Do what they, do what they say, what they tell you. Just don't live like them, which means they were, what do we call people who do that, who say one thing and live another? Hypocrites, right? I knew of a pastor once that said to somebody, someone said, listen, I would be a Christian, but there's just too many hypocrites in the church. And this guy, southern guy, he just said, listen, if you don't like hypocrites, then you better get saved or you're going to spend eternity with them. You know, it's like, smarten up. You're going to spend eternity with them. Don't be one of those. Now, let me ask, full disclosure here, how many people in here can say that you've had a time in your life where you have been a hypocrite? How many people in here are liars? No, most of you put up your hands. It's, it's, there are those times, right? We've all done that. We, we've all done it. But we're not going to park there. We're not going to live there. 
That's not where we're going to stay. We've all done things at times that are like that, where our conduct and our character didn't align with what we profess to believe. We've all been guilty of that. We've probably all been guilty of being deceitful at some time, or greedy, or having impure motives. All the things that Paul starts to list here. Um, And I mean since becoming a Christian, not before that. However, that's not where we park ourselves. It's against the nature of God in you. It's contrary to the Holy Spirit who came to live in you when you received Christ. It's possible that Paul listed all of these negative characteristics, and I'm going to go through it quickly, all these negative characteristics in this passage because they were accusations being leveled at them. People, it said they were being, uh, they suffered, they were being mistreated, and people, they, they had opposition here too. He says, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. People were probably saying these things about them. He says, our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, we speak not as being man-pleasers, but God-pleasers. We never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God's our witness. These are probably all things that people said, those guys are just after your money. Has anybody ever said that about the church? Oh, for sure. Oh, they're just hypocrites. Oh, they've got impure motives. They're after something. What's their angle? What are they trying to sell? All of those kind of things. He said all of these things probably because his opponents were misrepresenting them the same way that nowadays worldly media and Hollywood misrepresent you. If you watch, there's an old movie called On the Waterfront that we watched a few years back and we loved the way that the priest was portrayed in it. The guy is strong. And he's got integrity, and he's sta- and I don't. What year was that movie? So, do you know? Nineteen fifty-five. That was before Hollywood totally decided Christians are public enemy number one. So now to see, uh, um, you know, a clergyman ever presented as somebody favorable doesn't happen. But they, you know, it, it wasn't always that way. But nowadays, Christians are misrepresented in the media. Christ followers are just that way, and we accept it as just we know that's how they're going to present us. Well, Paul just knew his opponents were going to misrepresent him, but he didn't care. They were going to go, we're going to boldly proclaim the gospel because nothing else is more important. In his case, he reminded the Thessalonians of how these accusations were not consistent with what they saw with what the Thessalonians saw of their behavior, they, they, how they actually behaved among them. He says their aim was to please God. They didn't assert their authority as apostles, but were instead gentle. I love this picture. He says in um, uh, verse 7, they were gentle as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own infant. A nursing mother can't get more, hey, dependent and tender. It's like a beautiful picture. And he says, that's who we actually were. And you know it. You saw it. Instead of 
asserting their authority, they were gentle, like a nursing mother. He says then, having a fond affection for you, we were delighted or well-pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our own lives. We're not just sending it from, you know, we're not just, as they say, mailing it in. No, they gave them their lives. We'll give you whatever we've got. He says, our own lives as well, because you had become very dear to us. Man, that'll, that will make the gospel stick. When people look at it and they say, wow, these people, there's not impurity There's not greed. There's not hypocrisy. They gave us their own lives. We were dear to them and we felt it. We knew it. We worked night and day and endured hardships so that you wouldn't be burdened. As we proclaimed the gospel, you know and God knows how devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly we behaved toward you. It kind of sounds like Paul is tooting his own horn. But if it wasn't true, they would have known it. So I, I think he... He knew it had been substantiated. And verse 11, you know, we exhorted and encouraged and implored each of you as a father does his own children. Their behavior substantiated the gospel and the heart of God. Which, of course, makes sense. Because when Jesus came, and he preached the gospel, and he touched people's lives, what was part of the thing that made such a difference? They knew he loved him, that he loved them. They knew this wasn't just religion to him. He loved them, and he got in. The leper, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus, of course I'm willing. Lepers didn't get touched, except by Jesus. Of course I'm willing. I'll cross that little divide. And he touches the guy and he's made clean right away. God so loved the world that he gave his son. And Jesus represented that. Jesus perfectly reflected that. Okay, and now verse 12. Here's what I wanted to come to today. Paul uses this short phrase that means so much. He says, we spoke to you and behaved honorably as we did so that... I always love it when you see that word. You stop and say, so that. Something before leads up to this, so that you too may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We did all of this so that you too may walk in a manner worthy, a manner that's fitting, a manner that shows than the value that God has in your life. This godly way of life was not an expectation for apostles only, or for missionaries and pastors or prophets, or people who work in mercy ministry and compassion ministry like Union Gospel Mission or World Vision or something. No, the gospel is for all, and walking worthy that that is incumbent upon all believers, all followers of Christ. Walking in a manner worthy of God is for all. Amen? Behave, live, conduct yourselves in a worthy fashion. God help us to do it. God help us to do it. In this hour, maybe more than ever. 
Now, as I said earlier, I think we and most people raise their hands that um, they're hypocrites, so I know I'm talking to the right group here. Uh, I've done things since coming to Christ that I regret. I've done things at times, and it's like, I regret them. But I thank God for repentance. That with God, it's like, I did that. Rather than defend myself or justify my behavior, I'm coming back to God and saying, here I am again. I've repented for this before, and I'm back. Anybody ever done that before? I know that some people have even said to me, can I go back to God again? Because it's been like, you know, the revolving door. God, thank you for forgiving me for that. And by the time out on the street, God, I'm back. <laughs> Please forgive me again. You know, and it's like, as you're going through, he says, you'll be back. <laughs> no, he doesn't want us to, but repentance. Thank God for it. When you, when you have that, you do something you regret, go to God, get it right, and get back in the saddle. Go on. Go on. What else are you going to do? Give up? No, you can't. Because we know what the end is. So repent, turn, and go back. Go back. Move on. This time, God, give me grace. Give me grace. I'll keep coming back to him for mercy and forgiveness. I want to read this to you. This, This fits this. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. That's a verse worth memorizing. Come with confidence to the throne of grace to get mercy when you've screwed up. But not just mercy, but grace to help in the time of need. God, I don't want to come back. I'm going out. I, please give me grace to not do it again. You know, like, that's a, a verse worth memorizing. Walk, aim to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. His, in a manner worthy of him. His worth is infinite. This is every Christian's calling. Aim to walk in a manner worthy. Tell somebody around you right now. Aim to walk in a manner worthy. Aim to walk in a manner worthy. Amen. Okay, finally, I want to... Are you laughing because you said that to the person and you thought, you're never going to do it? No, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. Finally, I, I want to highlight one other aspect of this. Often, an imitation of something means something that's of less value, right? Um, my brother-in-law went to China uh, several times. He's the principal of a Christian school. And he said he went to buy something. I forget what it was. I think it might have been a laptop cover. And he said he was going to buy one in a store, like a like an Apple store or something like that. And somebody said, Tommy, oh. And he took him down like this alley and there's some kind of a place where they make uh, 
uh, what do they call them, knockoffs of the real thing. And unlike here, where I know that the, when I was in Mexico one time, they had Nikes, and at the time, Nikes, you know, this is way back, maybe $60 for a good pair of Nikes. There, they were like 15 And it's like they didn't have the same law where you can't put that logo on it but in Mexico, they could. <laughs> they just, that's easy. I could cut that thing out, you know, and stick it on a shoe. And somebody runs down the court twice and the sole of the shoe is gone. But they were cheap. They were lousy. In China, my brother-in-law said the, the knockoffs they were making were good ones. And they were, he said, he looked at it. He couldn't tell the difference on some of them. They were well-made. But, of course, you know, with that name brand, they just hike it up. Well, imitation jewelry. I can't tell the difference. Um, things like that, uh, you know, I just don't know. And an imitation Rolex, you know, you can buy a Rolex for 95 bucks. It might be a fake, okay? Imitation is like that. However, here's Paul. He speaks now to the church and says that they were imitators. They became imitators, and it's not a slight. It's a good thing here. He says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as, a wor- as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who Uh, believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. There was no slight here. In this case, he's saying you started imitating those churches and it was proof that you really received the word of truth. It changed you. You became imitators of them. You looked just like them. And here's what they did. Here was the, the area where it became evident, not just their love, not just their care for the um, other believers, not just those things, but they became imitators who were willing to suffer at the hands of their countrymen the same way that the Judean churches suffered at the hands of the Jews in their country. He says, from their countrymen, he says, they, you're obviously not in this for self-interest or you wouldn't have done that. If it was just a matter of self-interest, it would be like, okay, no, who needs this? I don't need this. I don't need to, to pay a price like that. This is happening today. In Afghanistan, they consider it the most dangerous place to be a Christian today. North Korea would be second. It's been first for many years, but Afghanistan has kind of taken the lead, supposedly. Somalia, Libya, Nigeria, Iran, Pakistan, these are all um, all in the top 10 most dangerous countries to follow Christ, where persecution is coming from the law and the government, but it's also coming from family and neighbors and the culture itself, where people are... But here's the amazing thing. People are still responding to the gospel. It's not, they're not in it for just self-interest. Oh, I want to live a cushy life here on earth. Nope. They're in the, the fastest growing church, they say, in the world right now is in Afghanistan. Second is in Iran among women. And isn't that amazing that in Iran right now, there's such upheaval. And all of these, I'm wondering, 
Of course, our media would never say the people taking charge and, you know, pushing the envelope in all of this are Christian women. They wouldn't give that, um, they wouldn't give credibility to it like that in, in the Western media. But I'm wondering if that's what's going on. People where, where there's a cost, where they have to endure intense opposition and suffering are turning to Christ. Yet somehow in my head, I've thought almost, you know, almost wanting to soft sell the gospel. Oh, no, it's all going to be okay, you know. Uh, come to Jesus and, oh, it's going to be one big party. You liar. It is not. There's going to be some challenges. Anybody here face any challenges for your faith? Ever have anybody say something to you that was disparaging because of your faith? Yeah. I had a guy at UBC. Two of us went out and witnessed to this guy one time. And uh, when I was still doing campus ministry, and we're talking to this guy. And, and he didn't know what it was. And he's thinking, oh, you're doing some kind of survey. And I'm holding, you know, a thing like this, like a, a kind of a clipboard kind of thing with this sort of survey to ask these questions. And this guy was open enough. He goes, oh, you know, what is that? And he's kind of wanted to see it and like this. And then he, he saw something that it was a Christian thing. And he went, oh, no, get that away from me. And then he looked, and I had a U of A shirt. And he went, oh, get that away from me. And then he went, and you're from Alberta. Go to hell. <laughs> if there's one thing I hate more than Christians, it's Albertans. You know, it's like he, he said this like he, I don't know what, you know, did that. But, you know, it was like I didn't fold and buckle. It's like, you know, that's pretty minor, obviously, compared to some places. But we're not viewed favorably. But God is going to get his message out. And when People get touched by the actual love of God. Some of those kind of opponents are probably resisting something that's stirring in them. And you hear about it time and again. The people that seem the most vehemently opposed end up coming in. They end up being the ones. So for us to be people whose lives we're walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, part of that is setting our expectation that not everybody's going to think we are just the greatest thing since sliced bread. That somebody might not like us. That somebody might not like the gospel, but we step out and we do it. And in some cases where that kind of thing happens, it is the thing that will substantiate the reality of the gospel in a way that's going to see people get saved because it's happening in China and in Iran and in Afghanistan and places. Now, am I saying I want to suffer? Of course not. But we will. We will pay some of that price. We're going to face some of it. And Peter, the apostle Peter, says in his first letter, arm yourselves with this mindset. Christ suffered and all who live godly in Christ will likewise suffer. We're going to have, we're going to, we're going to feel some heat on our, uh, on the back of our neck. The, the hour we're living in is going to require that we're people willing to face opposition. But the reward 
the return of Jesus to gather to himself the people he died to redeem and grant eternal life to will so surpass any cost that we have to pay. What is that verse in uh, Romans 8? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The same Paul who wrote this letter, he's the one who said that. The glory that will be revealed will so outweigh every challenge, every pain, that we will laugh and sing and delight in him forever.